Thank you, Ron. I've got tickets coming out of my ears. I'm going to lay those right there. Can you hear me all right? Uh, first of all, I guess some of you are sitting there wondering now, what is he going to say after what's been going on up here tonight? Uh, I've just heard two wonderful talks. And, and, uh, and by the way, if that commercial break is coming off again in the next few minutes, come on up here and get it over with. <laughs> Because you about scared the hell out of me up here. I didn't know what was coming off. And uh, I like it. I really That's the first time I've ever seen anything like that. They had an AA function. But uh, believe me, you watch. Somewhere down the line in a few weeks, somebody else is going to be doing it. But uh, I like that. And I'm uh, the, the first group that got up there real good. But that last gal, she's got to practice some more. Let me tell you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> every time you stand up here one of these things like this, I'm, I'm often reminded of a story, particularly when you have a, uh, a program that goes on from some length of some time. It, it's been told to me many years ago, back in my home state, they had one of these state conventions. And they had a long-winded speaker. And there are some of them around. And he got to talking, and after about an hour, he covered the, the 12 Steps. In the second hour, he'd covered the twelfth editions, and then he got into the three, three legacies on the third hour, and gradually people began to leave. And they will leave. I found it out one night, and uh, and and he kept on going. And after about three hours, everybody left except one man. Just kept sitting there in his chair. Just kept sitting there looking at it, him. And naturally, the speaker began to get concerned, so he wound up his talk ran down from the podium and grabbed the man by the hand and says, I want to ask you one question. Everybody left but you. Why did you stay? And he said, Hell, I'm the next speaker. Well, <laughs> and you know kind of how I feel now, don't you? I am an alcoholic and my name's Dave Cook. Hi, everybody. Hi. I'm a member of the Big Book Group in Raleigh, North Carolina, which I think is the finest group in the whole wide world. And if you don't think the same of your home group, then I suggest maybe you need to find another group. Because of God's grace and because of a, a lot of love and a lot of good sponsorship that I found in this program by working it one day at a time through the results of a, a loving wife that I found as a result of the program and through the help of some sponsors who led me with a kind but firm hand, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or any tablets since the day I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that day was September the 12th, 1957. Now, 23 years ago, 23 years ago tonight, I attended my second AA meeting, which is the reason I give my sobriety date. I'm about to explain. Uh, sometimes it impresses me. It impresses me today. And then a few days, you know, I'll pass it on and start on another one. You know how that goes. But anyway, my, the second meeting I ever went to in Alcoholics Anonymous was a, one of these discussion meetings. And I came into AA up in Roanoke, Virginia. And I had 13 or 14 wicker chairs sitting in a circle. And I was no different from anybody else that goes to our first discussion meeting. I began to wonder what I was going to say when it got to me. And it finally got to me. And the man who was to become my first sponsor spoke up and told me what to say. 
He says, give your name and your sobriety date. That's all you are qualified to do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, after the meeting, he explained to me that that's all I was going to be qualified to do for about the next year, was to give my name and my sobriety date. And the second reason I give my sobriety date is because in that group, the old central group in Roanoke, Virginia, they had a saying that if you got behind that podium in that group and you were a member of that group, if you didn't give your sobriety date, you usually didn't have one. So that's the reason I give my sobriety date. I'm very glad to be here tonight, and I'm a long way from home. Uh, there's some people here I know, and it's good to make new friends and meet old friends. But I know that in my time at AA, I've come to know that as you travel this vast country, everywhere you go, AA is AA. It's no different here from anywhere else. And I feel comfortable being here tonight. I have felt very comfortable up until a few minutes ago. And I'm not going to keep you long tonight. I'm going to say something. I'm going to probably talk about you. And I'll probably talk about me. And I'll probably talk about God. And to me, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is, as I know it today. You see, the program has given me many benefits. Uh, some of these benefits that I classify as marginal benefits, such as some peace of mind, uh, a lot of happiness, and a little serenity. But any time I speak of marginal benefits, I have to speak of certain basics. And the basic benefit that I received from this program, beyond my sobriety, and naturally sobriety came first, the basic benefit that I received from the program is my sanity. My sanity. And today as I find that as a sane alcoholic I don't have to run anymore, I don't have to cheat anymore, I don't have to steal anymore, and most important of all, I do not have to sober up anymore. <laughs> and I didn't know that when I got here, that the name of the game was staying sober. I really didn't. I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous when I got here. I didn't know anything about alcoholism when I got here. But yet as I look back, and I'm not going to get into my drunkalogue tonight, I hope. <laughs> I hope I don't get tangled up. I, I like to talk about staying sober because that's my job today. It's been a long time since I've taken a drink. I haven't lost the right to take a drink. It just so happens today I haven't had the desire. And I don't want to drink. But I look back at, at my childhood, at the way I was raised, and, and I've never understood, I, I, somewhat I do today. Uh, you see, my, my, my father was an alcoholic. Although I didn't know it until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't know anything about alcoholism. Uh, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, my father and his drinking. Uh, as a matter of fact, in later years after my mother divorced him on account of his drinking, my father was one of these men that you've heard this expression, he's a good man as long as he didn't drink. And he was a good man. But it led to divorce in my home when I was 12 years of age and my mother was able to clothe me and feed me and give me a good education. I went off to school, and I can remember as a kid promising her that I'd never be, you know, be like that. And I went off to school, to college, when I was 16, and I got into that environment, and I've always said I think the environment that I was in had a lot to do with my drinking, and my environment in my sobriety has a lot to do with my sobriety. But I went off to school, and this is when the fellows from World War II were coming back, and they're a lot older than I, and I began to be around them. And I just began to do what the big boys were doing. I can remember the first time I ever got drunk. I can remember how sick I got, too. In the beginning, I used to have to go through those gagging exercises that some of us go through. Had a lot of trouble getting that stuff down in the beginning. 
And I didn't understand. You know, they talked to me about the pleasure that comes from drinking, these older fellows, and I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about. The pleasure that comes from drinking, because I was gagging most of the time because I wanted to do what they were doing. But I was gagging, and uh, one night I asked one of them, I said, when does the pleasure come that you speak of? Never forgotten what he told me. He said, Dave, says, there's a little pause in between from the time you take the drink and when you throw up, that's when the pleasure comes. (laughs) I see some of you know what I'm talking about. And so I went on through school. I I didn't know what a hangover was. I I, I adjusted this environment. I began to drink heavy for a college student and and I didn't do anything abnormal. I just had a good time drinking. And then my senior year in college, I was playing college basketball, and there on a partial basketball scholarship. I started doing strange things, crazy things. And one of them was I studied engineering, but uh, when I graduated, I decided what I'd do. I'd go to coaching high school basketball. And so that's what I did when I graduated from college. I went to coaching high school basketball down in my native state of North Carolina and eastern North Carolina, 20 years of age, I had some kids older than I was. And I started teaching school and coaching high school basketball. In a period of time, I fell upstairs in the coaching profession, drinking right much along about then. No serious problems. Oh, I look back and I can remember the times I used to, you know, uh, to uh, meet my former classmates at various cities. And we'd have these, uh, you know, we call them parties. Oh, they were just weekend brawls. And that's all they were. And we'd fight and get drunk and tear up a car and maybe show up Monday, if not Tuesday. And this is the way it was. It was just a big party. And then about the third year, after I changed schools because of the success I was having, I, I, I got into another environment, and, and I ingested this environment. And uh, this was a, a much larger school. And, and I, as I said, I just fell upstairs in the coaching profession. And, uh, but I, I began, in this community, I began to associate with school board members that drank quite a bit. And it wasn't long before I had a place to go every night to drink socially. <laughs> and uh, ever what that is. And so uh, I was drinking every night by the time I was my third year of teaching. And uh, along about the fourth year when I had to get into the morning drink, I found myself not being able to go to school unless I was under the influence of alcohol. Not bad, but I had to have that drink. Along about the fifth year is when people began to talk to me about some problems I was having. And mainly the school board and the principal, and they began to talk to me about these things. And I resented them talking to me. It's right ironic as I look back and at it now. And this is the thing that of another... And I don't understand that either. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is the thing I've never understood about alcoholism. And, and this was to plague me until, the, until that one morning on September 11th, so help me God. The inability to see myself as I really was in my worst moments. And this is the thing that kept me in that bottle so long, so long, so long, is the inability to see myself as I really was in my worst moments. And I I didn't stand a chance along about then because uh, I resented it and they talked to me about it and told me something had to be done. And and what do you do? You get, the alcoholic starts to get people off his back and so I started getting people off my back. I, you know, you got to come out with something that's dashing or get somebody's attention so I decided I'd get married. And uh, I got the attention on it. got mine, too, as a matter of fact, when I sobered up. Uh, <laughs> uh, we coded for about two weeks. Uh, she was a fine woman, came from a good family, and, and, and I've never blamed her for any of my drinking. Uh, she didn't know how bad I did drink, and I didn't either, to be honest with you. But uh, we coded for about two weeks, and we were married, and, 
And I don't know if you've ever heard of anyone uh, having one of these things. We had a group honeymoon. We carried three other couples with us. This is the way my first marriage started, (laughs) right around the bottle. And when this honeymoon was over, which lasted two months, by the way, uh, it was about September and time to school to start again, and she talked to me about my drinking, and I promised her that in a few weeks when school started, I'd stop. And this was the first time in my life I ever realized that I couldn't stop drinking. Although I didn't know I was an alcoholic, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. And I tried teaching for about two months, and then my mother interceded, and she was financially able to send me to a lot of places. Uh, they sent me some drying out places up and down the East Coast, uh, these places where you go and taper off. And I just about tapered off to death. I'd come back in worse shape than when I went most of the time. And, uh, and finally I had some... Not the word sobriety because I didn't know what sobriety was, but I, I had a period of time there after I came back from the last hospital or that uh, one of these drying out places that I didn't drink for a while. And I was able to make some inroads and secure my job a little. And finally I went back to drinking and I eventually lost my job on account of my drinking after five years at this particular school. And uh, here's a man then 25 and 26 years of age. In the throes of alcoholism, and everybody knows it in the community except him. And this is a strange thing. And, of course, when I left this school, when I was fired, I, I didn't know what I'd do. I, back in my home state, if you just keep moving east, you get to that big body of water right there. And, and really, my story is simply, I just kept moving east. And I finally got to that big body of water, too. I, I moved east to another school. It was a rock bottom of schools. In other words, it was about the sorriest one in the state. And they hired me in a, because they couldn't hire anybody else. And I was able to last this school for a period of about six months. Where I was living, I had to drive about 13 miles to the school every morning. And and the only way I can describe my drinking this time, I'd gotten to the point that I had to get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and I had booze then, and to drink about a pint so I could stop shaking, so I could stop shaking, so I could shave and shower and get my clothes on, go to that schoolhouse and perform. And invariably I knew what was going to happen about 12. The shakes would come back. I'd have some hit in the gymnasium or in the automobile, take a few shots to stop shakes and pray for 3 o'clock. And 3 o'clock would come, then I'd start back home, stop by the beer joints and drink beer and then go by the store and buy enough booze to go home and get stoned to the ears. And this went on for a period of about six months until one day at school, I did it, the principal just stopped me in the hall and says, Dave, uh, we need the keys. You're no longer employed here. Hell, they didn't even call me in his office and talk to me business-like. <laughs> just said, we're through. You're through. Uh, we don't need you anymore. And I've looked back at this moment in my drinking life quite often, and I really believe, well, I practically know now that uh, this was the point in my life. Although I didn't know it myself, I'd gotten to that point that we speak of, that I'd crossed that invisible line, that I'd do anything for a drink of liquor, although I didn't know it. And this man knew it. And I left school that day, and I don't know where I went. I'd experienced blackouts before, but never no prolonged blackout. And two weeks later when I came to, I was in jail for the first time in my life in the community where I was teaching school. I would gotten into a lot of trouble. And a man began to talk to me one particular morning as I came to uh, through a cell door, and he, I later found out he was a county health doctor. And he said, son, says your mother has come down here and straightened out all this mess. And she had straightened out a lot of messes in my time, and she had to straighten out another mess. A lot of money had to be spent to get me out of trouble. 
to pay off all those bad checks and those hotel bills and those people I got into trouble. And says, uh, she's uh, straightened out all this mess and we're going to send you to a place where they can cure you. And I didn't know what he meant by curing me. Uh, I didn't still, no alcoholism in my mind. Uh, I, I knew I was physically run down because uh, I'd long stopped since eating and, and I went to a place for the cure. In my home state, the insane asylum is called Dix Hill. And I've often said that I, too, found my thrill on Dick's Hill. <laughs> That's where I went for the cure when I was 27 years of age. And so help me God, as long as I draw a sober breath, I, help, I, I hope I never forget my first trip to Dick's Hill. I hope I never forget it. Because, uh, you know, after I got to Dix Hill, still this thing, I'm not knowing that I was an alcoholic, after a period of a few weeks, I began to look around me, and I didn't see anybody my age. And I'm wondering what I was doing then. You see, they had me there in uh, what they call the alcoholic ward, a locked building, three floors to it, and a basement. And the second day I was there, they put me in the basement in the place they called Skid Row, which was a padded cell. They took my clothes away from me and let me have my running fits. And days later, when I got through having my running fits, they gave my clothes back to me. And then I was allowed to do the only thing I could do for the next 30-some-odd days. And that was walk up and down a corridor day in and day out, wondering what I was doing there. And finally, one night, I, you know, nobody my age. And I began to look at it like some of us look at it, you know. Somebody has made a mistake. I'm not one of these over what they are. Not one of these. But one night I was uh, watching a poker game. Uh, grown men, uh, much older than I, they were playing poker with matchsticks for chips. And they began to talk about why they were there. And I heard this, this man I've always called the face. And I don't know whether he's dead living or he's a lot older than I was. I know he's not in Dix Hill, but I don't even know if he's in AA or not. But I heard this face. And this face said, I'm here because I'm an alcoholic. And my God, when I heard the word, I resisted the word for the very word itself, although I knew what it meant because it meant one thing to me and this was a game that I began to play until the day I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe after, of comparing my drinking with my father's drinking. And if the truth was known today, my father was a much better man in his drinking than I ever hoped to be. He lost a family, but he never got kicked out of his profession. He never had to be put behind bars for a period of time on account of his drinking, but I did. He never had to go to Dick's Hill, but I did. And this was the thing that I began to do, compare his drinking with mine. The day came that I had to leave Dick's Hill, and I didn't have anywhere to go. In spite of the fact I'd had some success in coaching in a profession, a college degree, and you can throw them damn degrees away with booze, I found out. And I went back to the only place I could go. That was back to my mother. And you know how mothers are. And I was one of these boys that had a mother to love the son very much. My mother loved me so much that I just about died from it. And I went home and my mother accepted me and began to do things for me and made me welcome. And then the family doctor, who was ignorant of my situation, uh, decided that he had helped me. Uh, 
I don't know a great deal about drugs and pills, but I know an awful lot about tablets. The good doctor gave me some tablets to take. And those tablets were second aisles and yellow jackets and a few other things to keep me from being so nervous, ignorant of my situation. I began to take these things, and I didn't have to drink for a long period of time, about nine weeks. And I was floating around my hometown, uh, about loose as a goose most of the time, uh, just throwing those things down like popcorn and, and didn't want to drink because I didn't need it. They were doing for me what I needed to be done, giving me that, that relief. Until one night I was with a bunch of fellows that I'd been in school with and they were passing a bottle and I took a drink. And this is when the compulsion set in again. And then I found out that they can carry you back to these institutions whether you like it or not. And I went back to Dix Hill again, the place I said I'd never go again as long as I live. To make a long story short, I went back to Dix Hill five times in six months on account of one fact. I had become an alcoholic and didn't know. I had gotten to the point in my life where I'd take one drink and I could no longer guarantee you my behavior. And to me, that's what an alcoholic is. The last time I went back to Dix Hill, I woke up in the nut part of the bug house instead of the drying out part. And there's a distinct difference in case you're interested. And I found out about straight jackets and being tied down to beds and how you live better electrically. I found out about that too. <laughs> And you know how I left Dix Hill? You know, we hear a word in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've heard it over the years, ever since I've been in, and you'll keep on hearing a word called coincidence. A coincidence began to happen in my life before that I ever got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I know what a coincidence is today, and I think that thing that I call a coincidence was working in my life then, this power that we speak of. Because I think this power had a plan for me. I have to believe it. But by some strange coincidence, one day I was put back in the, the drying out part of the bug house with the rest of the alkies. I'd been there so much that more or less made me an honorary attendant. Uh, allowed me to work in the kitchen, go get the mail and things like that. And then one day, uh, three other fellows and myself decided we would, uh, well, I don't want to sound dramatic, but we decided we'd escape. And uh, back then it was like cops and robbers. Uh, you ran, man, you ran, and they chased you. And uh, that's how I left Dix Hill the last time I, I escaped. And the alcoholic, and this is, made the papers, this big escape. But the hell of it is, I was drunk that night. With three, the same three fellows, we were drunk that night. After we got this big deal going, and here we are drunk, we can't even move. It don't make sense. But uh, we were kicked out of several hotels in the period of about two days, and then through a friend of the family, my mother's friend, I was able to get hold of some money in Raleigh where this institution was located and stay drunk for a while until finally they had to put me on a bus and send me back home. And when I got home, my mother wasn't at home. She was in a hospital up in Richmond, Virginia with a nervous breakdown. And uh, her beloved son had come home and broken to her home and stayed there for a period of two weeks until they found me when they brought her home. And uh, they brought her home and they found me upstairs in my bedroom where I was, when I was a little boy in the baby crib. Can you imagine a man six foot four getting in the baby crib? That's where they found me. And they got together and when they get together you better watch out because something's going to happen. 
And they are those people that get in the den and crack the door and leave you in the other room and they begin to talk about how much they love you or how they're going to do away with you. And they got to arguing and finally they had a plan and the plan was and they approached me about it and they gave me a wad of money and told me to leave that part of the country and not to come back. I was killing my mother. And when I say they, I mean my two sisters and a friend of the family has been like a father to me. And there's nothing that a practicing alcoholic likes in a battle to get green on his hip. You know, you can begin to solve all kinds of problems. And this was enough money to go to the West Coast and live comfortably for a period of time. And, and true to as an alcoholic would do, I, I left home and went four miles to a neighboring town and pulled into an old broken-down hotel that, that I stayed for a period of months. Quite a celebrity I was in this hotel. Had money in the beginning. Money ran out. Had a lot of friends. And when the money ran out, I did the only thing that I knew to do. I'd reverted back to the same thing I'd always done. I'd write a check. So I went over to home one day, and I decided I'd buy me an outboard motor. I didn't have a boat, but I was going to buy a motor. <laughs> you know, write a big check, get the change, and pick up the money at the boat later, and that's what I did. And it wasn't long before John Law came to see me and carried me back to my hometown, put me in that jail again. Been there so much. Uh, it was just three blocks from my mother's home. And uh, every night uh, for a period of two weeks, uh, they'd bring in some new people except one other fellow and myself. We stayed in there about two weeks. And those drunks were out the next morning except us two. I began to raise a lot of hell down there one night. I, I wanted to know what I was charged with. And finally the jailer began to talk to me, came down, and I said, I want to see my attorney. He said, who is your attorney? I told him, he says, talk to him all you want to. He's in the next cell block. <laughs> and sure enough, he was. Uh, and that was the other man that stayed down there for two weeks. Now, God, in this program works in mysterious ways. This man is now a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, has been for many years, and is a member of our state legislature in North Carolina. So he found the program, too. But we both had to suffer a lot. The next day they carried me, one day along, and then they carried me upstairs, and I had to try and stand trial in a court of law for something I didn't know what I'd done on a previous drunk. And you'll have to understand this scene. My, my sister was the city clerk, and when they called my name, she didn't seem to know who I was. Uh, didn't phase her one bit. The city solicitor was my mother's next-door neighbor, and I didn't phase him with my name either. And they sent me back on downstairs and pronounced the sentence. And then the next morning I had to stand trial in another court of law for something I didn't know I'd done on a previous drunk. And to make a long story short, it was just a matter of a few days until I got to moving east. Uh, I don't know if you know much about the geography of my home state in Tidewater, Virginia, but it's an area called the Great Dismal Swamp. And where I wound up, and, uh, and I've always been ashamed of it, uh, and still am ashamed of it, I wound up on a chain gang. On account of one fact. I'd take one drink and could no longer guarantee my behavior. And I went to this place and did the things I had to do. And nobody in my family would have anything to do with me anymore. Nobody in the community would have anything to do with me anymore. And I stayed down until the day I had to leave. And I did what I had to do. And no time in this time that I really... Look at the problem that I had on the problem with the booze at no time. Now, there were times, I'll have to honestly admit, that there were times when I was down and out and I had to bargain with somebody to get something. 
I, in my weaker moments, I'd say, well, maybe it's the wine, maybe it's the beer, maybe it's the people. Always when I was down and out and had to bargain with somebody, that's there. I just took a glancing look. But you know what would happen? Invariably, after one of these bouts, as I'd begin to get my health back, the liar in me would revive again. And I'd become that same person I'd always been. I got to the point in my drinking that I could honestly deceive myself. I didn't know what truth was. And the day I had to leave there, I left. And they carried me back to the city limits of where I was raised and put me out. And I went back again to the only place I knew to go, back to my mother. And unbeknownst to me, uh, my mo- I went to, it's real unusual what I did this time. Instead of going to the front door, I went to the back door because I guess I thought I was a second-class citizen. And uh, my mother came to that door and they allowed me to sit on the porch that afternoon and talk for a while. And unbeknownst to me, I had tried to take her life on my last drunk and knew nothing about it. And she was scared of me. And they got together again that afternoon and my brother-in-law come over this time. And uh, he, uh, well, I don't want to get talking about him now. Let me change that right now. (laughs) Well, they got together and they got to arguing and I heard my mother say, that's my boy and he stays here tonight whether you like it or not. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And it was then in my life that I, I made a vow, if you call it that. I didn't know what sobriety meant. I just made, you know, I will do this for her. I will not drink anymore on account of her. I'll do this for my mother. I don't recommend this before A or after A. Trying to do it for somebody else. And she gave me love and she gave me clothes and she gave me attention. And it caused a lot of resentment in my family. And I didn't drink for a period of about eight months. One day it was suggested maybe I should go to work. Uh, been a long time. And uh, I didn't think I could get a job teaching in the state of North Carolina on account of my past and where I'd been, being put away for a while. And uh, looking back at that being put away, as I've said many, many times, I'm ashamed of it, but I really, and I say this in all sincerity, I thank God for the fact because I think it was a path that I had to follow. I was one of the, You know, we have plenty of people this day and time that recognize they have a problem with booze. They come on in here and make mighty good members and don't lose everything they got like I had to do. I had to be beat down to my knees before I could see myself. And this was part of it. But when she said, uh, maybe you need to go to work, I threw an agency up in Virginia. I was interviewed for several jobs in five different states in a period of about a week. My mother carried me to these places. And one afternoon we wound up in Roanoke, Virginia. On a particular Thursday afternoon, a man began to talk to me. And uh, this was in the latter part of August, or about the middle of August. And he found, he, he found out about my drinking in a period of about five minutes on the telephone. He called some people down in North Carolina and found out about my past. Now, I've never forgotten what he said. He said, Dave, we understand you had a problem with drinking at one time, but that you're cured now. And I said, yes, sir, I am. I'm cured. And I went back to my hometown with my mother that day when we left Roanoke. It was about 200 miles, and I had to come back up to that city the following Saturday. Had a place to live when I got there, back to take this job. Had new clothes, a new start in life, new finances, in spite of where I'd been and what had happened to me. The institutions, the jails, the chain gangs, and everything. In spite of all of that and the bad to it, I had a new chance in life. And on the way back to that Roanoke, Virginia, that day I had to change buses up in Virginia to another in a place up in the south side of Virginia. 
And I decided I'd have one drink. But I bought two pints. We always did add and subtract kind of funny. Uh, I have one drink, but about two pints. I guess I was going to give it away, you know. Uh, this was the beginning of the only drunk that I really like to talk about, my last drunk. My last drunk. Uh, this is a drunk I never want to forget. I'm one of these people that really believe that if I forget my last one, I might have another one coming. I don't want to forget my life. I don't want to forget the horror and the hurt and the loneliness. I don't want to forget the experiences that I felt on this last drunk, totally being alone. And I was able to uh, work for about a week. After I got back to Roanoke, uh, I got back to the morning drink on the fifth day, totally out of control. In the middle of the way this drunk, after about two weeks, my mother got in touch with me in that hotel and gave me the greatest gift she's ever given me since the day I was born on this face of the earth. And that's when my mother kicked me out of her life, and she meant it. And I knew she meant it. She wished me well and just kicked me out of her life. And uh, I didn't have anybody to turn to in that strange city. I really didn't know nobody, but one man knew me. And it was just a matter of the next day I was out of the hotel and on the streets doing the best I could. On Sunday, September 11, 1957, I was in a back alley on Skid Row in downtown Roanoke trying to get a drink of liquor down. Trying to get a drink of liquor down. It was early in the morning. I don't know how long I'd been in that back alley. And while I was in that back alley, the thought occurred to me that I was going to die if I took that drink. That I was going to die. And it's rather strange how the alcoholic thinks. And this is my day, my day to face myself, although I didn't know at that time, but it came that I was going to die in that back alley. And it finally dawned on me that I was dying from what I was doing, that I was dying from drinking, and that I was going to die just like my father did, from drinking. And I didn't take that drink. I knew nothing about a God, but I prayed out to a God I knew nothing about. And so help me. Maybe it was a coincidence. The only man that knew me in that city found me about three or four hours later. I don't know the exact time. The superintendent of the city schools in that city found me in that back alley because he was interested in a human being. And this man that afternoon, he didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but he knew a man that knew a man in AA. And they in turn got in touch with this man. And he told them where to carry me. And they carried me to a 12-step clubhouse in Roanoke, Virginia that Sunday afternoon, September the 11th. And that's where I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I can remember that it was a second-floor building, and uh, they didn't have to... I wasn't drunk. I'd long... I'd gotten to the point that I couldn't find oblivion anymore. I just couldn't... It was like pouring in a sponge. I, I, I couldn't black out anymore. Drinking was just like pouring in a hole. And, you know, I hurt. I hurt all over. My hair hurt. My toenails hurt. Well, really and truly, I was sick and tired of the high cost of low living, and that's what it is. <laughs> and my day had come. And those men carried me up those steps because I was so weak I couldn't walk. And when I got in that room on that second floor, we have a saying we don't look them over when we come in, but by God, you look me over and everything I owned was what I had on, and I had a paper bag with an ear syringe. I don't know why I had an ear syringe. <laughs> I've often wondered about it. I could make a damn talk about that sometime, an ear syringe. I had a, 
a yes syringe, a toothbrush, and a razor, and that's all I had to my name and ten pennies in my pocket when AA took me off the streets. And as you were beginning to look me over and talking to these men, uh, there was an old gentleman in the right-hand corner that gave me this. I've never stood behind a podium I don't mention this man. His name was John Tullock, old man John we called him. And this old man called me to the side and he said, Son, says, I want to tell you something. All you've got to do is listen to these people and do what they tell you to do and you never have to be alone again. That's what old man John told me. I didn't know it then, but what he was telling me was the first lines of chapter 5. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. That's what old man John was telling me. I thank God for the fact that I was able to shut the door behind me when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never had to go out there and experiment anymore. And I had sense enough to know that day that if I could follow the directions, I was welcome in that place. And I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know what it was about. Oh, man, John was a unique man. And we hear a lot of, and this is no reflection on age in Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't get me wrong now. I'm not judging. I'm just reporting. <laughs> uh... We hear a lot in here about the young alcoholic, the old alcoholic, the in-between alcoholic, all kinds of alcoholics. Well, as far as I'm concerned, there are two kinds, drunk ones and sober ones. Now, old man John come to age when he was 76 years of age. And he died at 82 with six continuous years of sobriety. I helped burn. And this was the man that rang my bell. This is the man that gave me something that I could hold on to for the first minute in AA. Probably the first year, really. I didn't have to be alone again if I could do what you told me to do. And so uh, after a period of time, I began to shake a little. And when you shake, you want relief. And so I asked some of them, what's the chances for a drink? And uh, they said, we don't do it that way. Uh, If you get too bad, we're going to get a doctor for you. And then I said something about tablets. And God, I thought I'd started a revolution. Uh, uh, they got that really got the ball rolling there. A lot of them got upset then. And as a matter of fact, for the first month in AA, I wasn't allowed shaving lotion. That's the truth. Uh, <coughs> they said, drink some of that coffee. Drink some of that coffee. I've always contended, and I still contend, there are a hell of a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous making coffee that ain't got no business doing it. <laughs> and this was one of those days because that coffee they told me to drink, it was this, you know, that solid stuff it just hung they said drink the coffee and uh, I thought it was a requirement that you had to drink that damn stuff and so I drank the coffee and I drank their coffee I drank that old coffee that ropey coffee until I, that night they carried me to my first day meeting I don't know what went on but I remember after the meeting uh, complete strangers walking up to me and putting an arm on my shoulder and telling me the magic words of Alcoholics Anonymous we love you and we understand you're going to be all right. And if nobody told you that when you walked in the doors of AA, you got shortchanged, as far as I'm concerned. Because that's all we got to offer, is love and understanding. And that's what they told me. And that night it, pro- it was proved to me that I didn't have to be alone anymore. Three men got me a room in the YMCA and stayed with me all night long. They took turns sitting on top of me and talking to me. And after a period of time, as I'd gain, you know, uh, go, an hour would go by. You've been so long without a drink. 
He'd been another hour without a drink. And as the sun was beginning to come up, I heard one of the men say, and his name was Claude, he's dead now. Dave, you've been so many hours without a drink, maybe you can make it today, and that's what we do in AA one day at a time. First time I ever heard it. And that's the first time I ever had any damn hope that I thought maybe I could make it for a day. But I knew I had to be around them. Something was generating from them. And after a few more hours, they carried me back down to the old Easy Does It Club was the name of this place, the 12-step clubhouse. And, and people began to talk to me, and then the man who was to become my first sponsor began to talk to me and tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous and to tell me what this program could do for me if I would do certain things. And he asked me a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Uh, he asked me such questions, you know, how many checks you got out? And I wondered how I knew that already. And I had some out, about $1,800 worth, mostly at that hotel, the big hotel. Uh, do you have a job? Every answer I gave him was negative. And then you know what he had the gall to say? It seems to me you're not doing so hot. <laughs> and you know, when I realistically approached that situation, I wasn't doing so hot uh, when I began to look at it. And he began to tell me about the program, the promises as outlined in that big book. And I thought he was crazy. And that afternoon he got me a place to stay, which was a boarding house of six other alcoholic men. That I give a lot of credit to my sobriety to these six men in this boarding house. Each one of us had a room. So help me. Uh, today I could not tell you where the clothes came from, the money for my food came from uh, our first six months in Alcoholics Anonymous. But it came from somewhere. And these six men in this boy, we had meetings after meetings. Meetings after meetings. And uh, they gave me much. Out of those six men, I helped bury two of them on account of going back to drinking. One of them had 13 years sobriety. Later on in life, he just decided he'd stop going to meetings. And the other one had a very distasteful thing in his life, and he killed himself and went back to the bottle. Two of them are drinking today, and two of them are sober. And I learned something from every one of them. They gave me much. I got uh, physically sober, and uh, and that group, uh, they, they, that was a unique group. They would take you inventory whether you liked it or not. They had a, uh, they had a regular conference table in the meeting hall where they, if they decided they wanted to tell you something, they'd call you in and sit you down. And it was just like a trial. And uh, one night they decided they'd solve my employment problem. And I've always said I've learned much more from people with less education in AA than I have. I, that's the truth. And the man that solved my employment problem was a man with a third grade education. He was a sign painter. And they began to talk and finally old Red says, Dave, it seems to me that if you studied engineering in college, that's what you ought to be doing in life. Well, the more I thought about it, the more sense it made. <laughs> And nobody ever explained it to me that way before. <laughs> really. And so uh, through Red's help, uh, I went to the Virginia Highway Department, which I got into the engineering field, which I'd studied and never practiced, and after I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. It was long about this time that I, I, I had another blessed event to happen in my life. I'd been sober about four months. When I met my present wife, Sue, uh, Sue's not a member of Al-Anon, she's not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, uh, Sue's never seen me take a drink, never seen me drunk. 
But she's been through more hell than my first wife did when I was drinking because she's seen me try to grow up in this program, which I'm still trying to do. And she came, and she came along, and I met this wonderful woman, and, and, and she gave me a lot of help. And after a while, I got physically sober, and I began to, you know, start doing the things. After I got this job and got a little green on the hip, I began to, you know, look a little better and dress a little better and, and get to be, uh, you know, kind of smart. I uh, wasn't long before I got to be the backbone of the group, I thought. Uh, got very active. I got to be a soul saver. Uh, started making a lot of 12-step calls. I had a little book. I kept the names in. Those that made it, I got credit for it. Uh, those that stumbled and fell, uh, my sponsor usually got in there somewhere. And, uh, you know, I, I, like so many people, have been through so many, you know, the stages that you go through in sponsorship. And I went through them too. You know, despise him. You know, love him in the beginning. Thank his God. And then you find out what he really is and you despise him. And then with sobriety and growth comes the thing that it's all about. You become to find out that he's your brother. He's your brother. And I had to go through this. And I had to go through a lot of things in my early sobriety. I, so many things have been so much benefit to me. I, it wasn't long before after I'd been sober about a year they finally let me talk. And my God, you should have heard this one. Uh, one of the fellows in that boarding house had gotten drunk and they had him at the meeting and I really thought the object of the exercise was for me to talk at him. And they had him propped up in a chair and he ain't heard a word I said, I know, to this day. But I gave a talk on how not to slip. I know it's unheard of, but I started to give one. Now, I'd been going about 20 minutes, and I heard somebody say, Sit down. Uh, you hear them, but you don't hear them. And I kept on going, and uh, hell, in a minute, he said, Sit down again, and I didn't stop, and finally he come to the podium. And it wouldn't hurt me a bit if somebody told me to sit down tonight. I was trained this way. And he grabbed me by the arm and took me off the podium. And I went back and took my seat on... They, the back row was called Humility Row in that group. That's where all the old-timers sat. And guess who was sitting with them? I had a year... And they, hell, they were up in 15 years sobriety, but I always sat with them. And so help me God, as I was walking down that aisle going back to Humility Row that night, this thought struck my mind, and it was this. I got a little too much power for him tonight, and he don't want me to overdo it. That's all it is. <laughs> and this is at a year of sobriety. The backbone of the group. Well, what had happened to me along about this time, I began to associate with an environment around AA. There were a bunch of people that were going to meetings half the time, telling me to take what I wanted and throw the rest away. And do these things, just remember you're an alcoholic and you're going to be all right. Now, this got me in trouble. Because uh, by my association with these people, I, I finally got to the point that I'd go 300 miles to make a talk, but I couldn't go one mile to listen. And when you get like that, you're sick. And I didn't know it. But there were some people around me that uh, knew what was happening. The old-timers and my sponsor. And they called me into that table one day and sat me down and took my inventory and told me what I had to do. And I got mad as hell at them. And I resented them. They told me I was going to get drunk unless I started doing these 12 steps. The very idea of telling the backbone of the group that he's going to get drunk. <laughs> and I got mad and I got ready to leave after they got through. And uh, 
As I was getting ready to go out the door, the man who was my sponsor spoke. I'll never forgot him. He says, before you leave, I want to ask you one question. And the question was this. When was the last time you thanked God for a day of sobriety? And God, that made me matter. And I went on back to that boarding house and I shut the door and locked it. The thought of drinking never occurred to me, but I want to get back at them. You know, you want to twist them, do something. So I sat down at my desk and I decided I'd send them a written resignation. I just resigned from Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and as I began to write this thing, uh, uh, that, that statement, that question he'd asked me began to, to echo. When was the last time you thanked God for this? It got louder and louder and louder. And finally, I was forced to my knees for the first time in my adult life. And I prayed to God I knew nothing about it. God to me was a question mark in the sky. Maybe yes, maybe no. But as a result of this juvenile prayer, I was able to get up off that floor and walk into a bathroom and look in a mirror at myself for the first time in my life and know what I really was. Eyeball to eyeball that I was just a speck on this universe, that I was born into the world and someday I'll die and soon be forgotten. And the only way I had to go was through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous if I wanted to stay sober because I tried everything else. And the next night I went back to AA. I rejoined Alcoholics Anonymous. And I rejoined many times since then. And I became a member of the clique. And if you know what I know, know, if you want to know what the clique is, you get there before the meeting starts sometime and see who does the work. Who sets out the ashtrays and makes the coffee. Who stays after the meeting and does the cleaning up. These are the things I started doing. And things got better. And I tried to start working on these steps like they told me to. And things got a lot better. Then after about a year and a half, the opportunity came that I had the opportunity to move back to the state of North Carolina. I didn't have the opportunity. Really what happened, I wanted to move back to the state of North Carolina so I could move Sue, uh, marry Sue. I had to get a divorce. And I couldn't get a divorce in the state of uh, Virginia. And I came back to my home state with the fully intention of staying six months and uh, getting my divorce. And so happened that I went for the North Carolina Department of Transportation. People I'm employed by today. And started life over again, and my sponsor, first sponsor, had made arrangements for a man to sponsor me when I got to Raleigh. And uh, Sue was able later to come down uh, months later after I got this divorce, and we were finally married in 60. But the man who became my second sponsor is a man that gave me much also. Uh, I was very fortunate. I, I've always been blessed with good sponsorship. I've always said that if I could give half the sponsorship that I received to a person that I work with, he or she would be all right. But this man was one of the first 188. He was a native New Yorker. He had married a girl in Raleigh and he had his business in Raleigh. He died in 1964 and if he lived to the following February, he would have had 27 years sobriety at that time. He had a lot of sobriety. He was the man that got me interested in service work. He was the man that ran the book, book, big book down my throat because after I got to Raleigh, you know, I'd ask people questions to let them know how smart I was. He said, read the book and then we'll talk. And he got me to reading that book and got me to really into the book, and to, which is the thing I love today. And uh, this man gave me wonderful, wonderful lessons about service, and also he gave me a wonderful lesson about talking behind one of these things. Uh, I'd been sober about four or five years, I guess, and I started going to these conferences and conventions and watching these jokers stand up here talking, you know. And hell, uh, when they got through, everybody was hugging and kissing them and clapping, standing ovations, and and I begin to think, you know, uh, well, this looks pretty good to me. Uh, <laughs> I believe I could do that. And uh, 
So one night after the meeting, I told Tom I wanted to talk to him. And so he carried me in the little ante room, and he was one of these people that made you sit down, and he stood up and talked down at you. So I sat down, and he stood up and talked down at me, and uh, I said, Tom, I think I'm a convention speaker. <laughs> well, I can't re- re- tell you what he said, but... Uh, uh, in essence, what he said was that from that time on, any time I spoke in that group, he'd tell me when. <laughs> and I mean speak. And uh, this is at five years sobriety, when I was about eight years sober. This is the God's truth. He called me over to his house one night and said, Bring Sue with you. I want to talk to you. And I said, What have I done now? And got over to his house, got in his den. I sat down. He stood up and talked down at me. And he says, you're going down to Columbia, South Carolina to talk at the state convention. You do this, you do that, you do this. Before you go, there's something I want to tell you. They asked me to go first. You're going as a damn substitute, and don't you ever forget it as long as you live. <laughs> and you know, every time I stand behind one of these things, I really believe that's all I am is just a substitute. Uh-huh. And that's the perspective I keep it in. Things got better, and I began to rock along. Sobriety came better, and, and I got into these steps, and things began to turn around for me. And I began to know, look around me and see people in AA and know what AA was about. I got involved. I started doing things. My first year in AA, after people start, you know, stopped patting me on the back, when another new man came in, as young as I was, gave him all attention, when they stopped patting me on the back, I was one of these people who began to ask questions. When are we going to do something? You know, well, I want some action. When are we going to do something? Well, they told me what to do. They gave me that book that says you're going to get into the 12 steps is what you're going to do if you want to survive, and this is what I started doing. And, you know, maybe there's somebody here tonight that like me at one time that maybe you're asking yourself, maybe, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe if you're quarreling with yourself or fighting with yourself, maybe you got to do like I had to do after about a year and a half, get honest with yourself. Well, find out about the program which I think is the core and guts of the whole thing, which is the truth, the truth. I think that's the core and guts of this whole problem. I heard a man say one time many years ago somewhere that said, when Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth in the body of a man, he didn't say, I'm a truthful man. He said, I am the truth. I believe it's from this source and this root that we inherited this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've seen enough in my time in AAR not only to believe but to know that there's a power behind this universe that stands ready to help you and I if we're willing to help ourselves. In the beginning, you know, I call it the man upstairs. Today I call it the God of my understanding. The God that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. The God that I found through you by your love for me. You know, uh, it took a long time for my mother to ever accept me back in her life. As a matter of fact, it took nine and a half years. After I first got sober, she didn't believe it. And when she found out I was sober, she didn't understand how I could do it for a bunch of strangers and I could never do it for her. And it got to the point I'd go visit it and we couldn't stay in the same room. We just couldn't get along. There was a, just a, uh, just something in the air we couldn't get along. And there was an old-time member in my hometown that I, God bless him, he's, he's dying tonight. I saw him last Saturday. But this man it was a man I used to go visit when I'd go see my mother. And this man would keep telling me, said, Dave, said, you just keep patient. You just keep working this program, and this too shall come to pass. You just keep doing what you're supposed to do. And I'd been sober nine and a half years, and they'd asked me to come back to my hometown and to talk at one of these anniversary meetings. And they had the whole town down. I'd call my mother and ask her to come, and she wouldn't come. And so I went to this meeting, and I began to do what I'm doing tonight. And 
Unbeknownst to me, some old ladies that knew me when I was a little boy came to that meeting. They were sitting in the back row. And I got through and went on back to Raleigh that night, and about 9 o'clock the, the phone rang. It was my mother. And she was crying. And unbeknownst to me what had happened, these old ladies went to see my mother that afternoon and told her about Alcoholics Anonymous in my life and what the program was about and what I was trying to do so that she could understand it. And God does work in mysterious ways. And this is a woman calling me my mother after nine and a half years of sobriety asking me to forgive her for what she'd done to me in my sobriety in my first nine and a half years. The only place it works is right here. And she knows where I am tonight. And this day and time, my mother is one of the greatest friends that Alcoholics Anonymous has. She's still living. As a matter of fact, my mother never calls me on my eighth birthday, which was yesterday, which you've already gathered. She always calls me five days ahead. Every darn year. And all she says is this. I think you got another one coming, haven't you? Yes, ma'am, I have. Well, good. I'm proud of you. Keep it up. You know, I, I've received so much from this program that I can't put into words. Uh, the gratitude that I wish I could express it. And the only way I know how to express my gratitude, I guess, is doing what I'm doing this weekend by being here in Cheyenne, uh, a long way from home. But I know I'm at home because I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. And as long as I hold my head up and say I'm a member and do what I'm supposed to do and practice these principles in all of my affairs, I will continue to be a member. And I'll be welcome anywhere I go. But in spite of these God-given things, I know there are still certain things I have to do in this program. The first thing I have to do is I, you know, I have to continue to have a monumental desire to stay sober. Because, you know, when I got here, I promised you, I told you that I was willing to go to any length to get this program. And sometimes I still have to say it to myself. It happens sometime when that phone rings at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and some guy or gal that wants some help. And, you know, I begin to say to myself, and maybe they can wait till after breakfast. But thank God the thought always comes. Those three men that first night that took me to that YMCA, and they didn't drop me off and say, we'll be back after breakfast. I have to still be willing to go in and length to get this program. The second thing I have to do is I have to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where it's at in the meetings. I think these things are wonderful. Conferences, this is icing on the cake. But if you get your A out of conferences and conventions, I'd suggest maybe you need to go back home and take a group inventory. That's where I want to get my A because I'm here tonight because of my group. They allow me to come, and I'm representing them whether I know it or not. And I've learned so much. My, you know, it's, it's, it's the little people in the group. And, and they know what I am. They know what makes me tick. We sit down and share eyeball to eyeball every night. And the greatest gift they've given me is the ability to, you know, to walk like a talk. That's what they give me. And it's the little people, the little people. There's a couple in my group. Ron knows them. Uh, a couple named Vernon and Gertrude. Uh, Vernon should have about 30 years sobriety by now, but he's working on his sixth year. Gertrude should have about 15. She's working on 10, 11 now. And I've been working with them about 15 years. And you work with these two, and you will stay sober or go under. They're man and wife. 
And I've learned so much about life from these two people. Uh, let me give you an instance. Uh, several years ago, uh, when they didn't have driving license, uh, they were, we were, it was a Christmas Eve night. We were having a meeting on the eighth step to let me lead, lead the meeting. There wasn't many people there. and Talking about the eighth step the whole night. And we got through it in the meeting. We crawled in the car. We were going to get a sandwich or something before we went home. And they both got in the car and we were going down the street. And Gertrude said to Vernon, I said, and we've been talking about the eighth step now. Vernon, when are you going to make some amends to me? Now, they'd been married about 12 years. When are you going to make some amends to me? And Vernon turned around to him and said, Hell, Gertrude, you're not even on my list. <laughs> now, and he meant it. She was not on his list. These are the people I have to be around. These are the people. The third thing I have to do is I have to, to uh, I have to try to continue to work these steps to the best of my ability. Because you see, for me, uh, I happen to know that there's a person you probably see in me, and then there's a person I see in myself, which is what the whole ball game's about. The person I see in myself, and that's what I have to live with. And it's through these twelve steps that I've become to find out something about Dave and been able to live with Dave. It's because it is, there's a line in my book that tells me this. We are granted a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And I happen to know that for this sober alcoholic, my spiritual condition is much improved since I've tried to work these 12 steps to the best of my ability because I found out about me. And when I know about me, I can be able to help somebody else. The fourth thing I have to do is some days, and you know what I'm talking about, some days I just have to hang on and do the best I can. And there are days like this. Tom told me many years ago, just hang on and do the best you can, for this too shall come to pass. And it's through these things that I think that, that yesterday is my experience and tomorrow is my hope. And today is going from one to the other and doing the best I can. And as long as I walk hand in hand with you down this happy road of destiny that we speak of now, Alcoholics Anonymous, I too think that I will be allowed another day of sobriety as long as I can be around you. And that's all I want to do. Now you can tell by me what I've said tonight that there's a big gap from where I was many years ago to where I am tonight. There was a lot of hatred in my life and today it's been replaced by love. And there's some lines in the big book that sums it up for me that i like to close with because I think it explains it better than I could ever say it in my own words. And the words are this. This great experience that released me from the bondage of hatred and replace it with love is really just another affirmation of the truth I know. I get everything I need in Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it was just what I wanted all the time. Coincidence that I'm here tonight? A coincidence. I've come to believe that a coincidence is the act of God in the midst of time. The same God that's been doing for you and I that which we could not do for ourselves. The greatest experience that I've ever had in my lifetime is Alcoholics Anonymous. And the longer I stay sober, the greater it becomes. Thank you very much.